Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, friends. And I'll be reading the scripture for today. Um, this passage is from Luke 7, and we'll be reading 33 to 50. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all, who, all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there and with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I had entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, I want to speak with you this morning about uh, the power of a meal, both in Jesus' lives, life and in our lives. And so uh, I thought we could just kind of set the table for our conversation this morning. If you could, uh, just turn to your left or to your right, talk with sp- someone who's close to you and answer this question. If you were to sit down to have the perfect meal, Uh, What would be on the menu, and who would be sitting at the table with you? Okay, just share that with someone close to you right now. I've been reading this book lately uh, by a guy by the name of Tim Chester, and it's called Meals with Jesus. And kind of each chapter sort of focuses on a different meal that Jesus had with someone else in the gospel stories. Um, And it's really cool things kind of coming out in each chapter. But one of the kind of golden strands that runs through the whole book is simply this, that meals mean something. Meals mean something. They meant something to Jesus. They mean something to us. So let me just give you an example. My bet, at least my hope, is that uh, no one here, when you were talking about what would be on the menu of your perfect meal, no one here said something that could be cooked in the microwave, right? Probably, I hope. Um, Because often even what we eat is actually saying something about why we're eating it, right? Often even the the things that were actually on our dinner plates are saying something about the occasion of why we're gathering. And so we cook a turkey, when? At Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? That's symbolic of those occasions. We have at birthdays, we have birthday cake, right? We come to the movies, we eat popcorn and pop, right? 
Uh, the food even that we eat kind of says something even about the occasion that we're getting together for. I heard a story recently about a guy. He said when he was um, uh, kind of a young teenager, he was at his grand grandparents' house. And his grandfather in particular was this big man. He said he was really tall and just a really big guy, but he didn't speak very much. He said, my grandfather probably said 80 words to me, well, <laughs> like over the course of my entire life before he died. Um, but on this particular time, they were together as a family, and his grandmother kind of, uh, cooked her special uh, fried chicken. And so they were sitting down to eat, and usually it was kind of tradition in their house that grandpa would stick his fork in it and take out the biggest chicken leg and slap it down on his own plate. But this time, grandpa stood up, reached in, plucked his fork into the biggest chicken leg, and then reached across the table and put it on his plate. He didn't say a word. He said, in fact, no one said a word, but my grandma looked at me, looked back at my grandpa, looked at me, and everyone knew what was being said by that act. He's like, that was my grandpa's way of telling me that in his eyes I had become a man. And that was a moment in his own life, just by a piece of food, that kind of said something so significant, right? Um, obviously, it's not just the food in our meals that kind of means something. It's the people who we share our meals with, right? Food confirms, or our meals confirm connection with one another. Um, for most of us, most of our meals, or many of our meals, are shared with people who are closest to us, right? Our husband, our wife, our kids family members, maybe you've got a close friend that you share a meal with regularly. Um, maybe in terms of special occasions, we, we broaden that circle a little bit more, and so we gather together with extended family members, with maybe uh, friends that we don't see all that often. Maybe for your perfect meal, you wouldn't have any of those people at it, right? But you would have people in your life sitting at the table who are significant to you, who mean something to you. Because when we sit down to eat, those are the things that a meal symbolizes, right? Friendship camaraderie, connection. We don't usually sit down to eat a meal with an enemy or with a stranger, or at least not people that we expect will remain that way, right? We sit down to eat a meal with like my people, with my team, with my colleagues, with my friends, with my family. And so meals are actually this thing that really, without even knowing it, they kind of serve as this kind of like social ritual in a way that kind of confirm connection. They strengthen bonds, they bring us together. There's power in a meal. I listened to this TED Talk recently by a woman named Lori David. She's actually a global warming activist, but in this particular TED Talk, she was talking about the power of family dinner. And she said, you know, um, regular family mealtimes have kind of all sorts of benefits, and they've had these benefits for years, but we haven't really been aware of them until more recently. And in fact, studies, all sorts of studies are being done on this stuff because fewer and fewer families are actually sitting down regularly to share meals with each other. And so she said, regular family meals are places where, um, where we learn like good social interaction, uh, where we learn to have like a, a healthy, normal conversation, where we learn to give and take, where we learn to share and be considerate and all these kinds of things. Uh, meals are a place where we learn like life values and worldview. So when we sit down with our family, we kind of rehearse our family story and our family history. We talk about the things that are important to us. We talk about the things that matter. Uh, meals are a place, she said, where we learn about like healthy lifestyles. So we make good or bad eating choices, right? Um, we learn like life skills, like cooking and cleaning up after the meal. She said she's a, an environmentalist. She said we even actually reduce our carbon footprint. But one of the things that she said that was most powerful to me anyways when I heard it was right toward the end of her TED Talk, and she said this. She said, I realized that regular family dinner had actually ritualized access to each other. 
And she said, as a result, dinner's become one of the healthiest habits and most important activities our family does. Regular mealtime, ritualized access to one another. That's what meals do. They give us an opportunity to sit down face-to-face with someone else and actually open ourselves to one another, actually become open to share, to speak, to listen, to influence, to be influenced by. There's power in a meal. Meals mean something. And what I love is that Jesus got this. It's such a simple thing, but Jesus got this, and he actually made use of it all over the place. The gospel stories, and particularly Luke's gospel, especially Luke's gospel, are actually full of meals that Jesus shared with people. So much so that there's actually one writer who said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either having a meal, he's going to a meal, or he's leaving a meal. Isn't that cool? Uh, All sorts of meals that Jesus had with people. People who were religious, people who were unreligious. People who were high, people who were low. He didn't just share meals, but he talked about meals. He told stories and parables about what uh, uh, the kingdom of God was like, this big banquet or this big feast that guests were invited. And of course, we all know about his last meal, right, that he shared the night before he died, the last supper that he shared with some of his closest followers. And I totally believe that it wasn't just kind of like an incidental thing that Luke included, that all the gospel writers included all of these meals that Jesus was sharing, that Jesus was having, and that Jesus was talking about with other people. Why? Because meals meant something for Jesus. In fact, in the Old Testament, um, there are all sorts of statements, of allusions, of symbols, of stories that are kind of pointing to and talking about what the future kingdom of God would be like when it comes and how God would sort of bring his people, lead his people into a time of peace and freedom from all their enemies and he'd bring them into a time of kind of like fullness and prosperity. But one of the symbols that was used so often when that kind of thing was being talked about in the Old Testament was the symbol or this idea of feasting, of celebrating, of having a banquet together when God's kingdom comes. And Jesus says this really interesting statement that was read for us by Dave in the beginning of the passage. He said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. We might think it was kind of a throwaway statement. No, it wasn't actually at all. He was pointing exactly to this idea. That title, Son of Man, was a messianic title was a title that they would have understood that would have connected to this person that they were expecting that would come, this savior kind of figure that would come powerfully and kind of bring the people of Israel into a whole new time of peace and prosperity and freedom. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. This is the one who's going to come and bring the feast, you know, the celebration, the banquet of the kingdom of God. But what I love is that every time Jesus sat down to eat a meal with someone, this is what he was doing. He was actually giving us a real picture of what the kingdom of God is actually like. Um, Some would have loved it. Some would have loved the picture that Jesus was giving when he sat down to share a meal with different people. Others would have hated it. It would have rubbed them so wrong. That's why one person said Jesus was killed for the way he ate. Isn't that so interesting? Um, And the story we had read for us this morning is actually one of those exact examples. It's this picture that Jesus gave us over the course of a meal about what the kingdom of God was like. So let's take a look at who was sitting at the table. First off, there was Simon the Pharisee. 
um, we know this meal took place at Simon's house, right? He had invited Jesus over for a meal. We don't really know exactly why. We don't know whether he was kind of a fan of Jesus or maybe a foe of Jesus or maybe just kind of curious to find out more about uh, who Jesus was and what he was like. But what we do know is that for someone like Simon, who was a Pharisee, a meal was loaded with meaning. It was full of meaning, meaning every time they sat down to eat. And so um, it symbolized all sorts of things. One of the things meals symbolized for a Pharisee like Simon would have been who is in and who is out. And so every time a, an observant Jew would kind of sit down for a meal, what would have gone through their head is the things that they can eat and the things that they can't eat. In the Old Testament, there's all sorts of laws about things that they're allowed to eat and things that they're not allowed to eat. Animals that they're allowed to kill and consume and other animals that they need to stay away from. And not just that, but even how they prepared their food was kind of outlined for them in the Old Testament. And a Pharisee like Simon would have followed those rules methodically. And the reason that uh, kind of all these rules were in the Old Testament. It wasn't really about diet. It wasn't really about kind of healthy eating. That wasn't really what the point was. The point was God wanted his people to follow these rules that were different from any other nation because he wanted his people to be different from any other people. He wanted them to kind of know that they're, they're a people who worship a God who is a God that is different from any of the other gods that any of the other nations worship. And so if you were an observant Jew, that would have mean that just by nature of the very way that you would have prepared your food, by nature of the very foods that you would have eaten, you wouldn't have been able to sit down and share a meal with someone who wasn't part of Israel. And so I think in the very best sense of this, the very kind of best reasons behind this were, were this was kind of meant to be a way that kind of protected God's people. Because we, we know meals are a significant time, right? They're a time where we share things that are important. We share our own stories. We share our family history. We share our values. We share our faith. And so this was kind of a way that God was sort of giving his people to sort of protect their own faith, their own values, their own priorities, their own faithfulness and worship to him. But I think at its worst, and in many ways what it had become, was these food laws were actually one more of many ways that had kind of... Um, infiltrated the way of thinking of Israel at that time that kind of was just, frankly, it was kind of a racism, a racial superiority, a spiritual superiority. They knew that they wouldn't eat, they couldn't eat, but no, it wasn't that they couldn't eat, it was that they wouldn't eat. They wouldn't eat with a Gentile. You know, and the food laws were just one more reason, in a sense, an excuse to kind of keep them separated. Who's in and who's out. Um, it wasn't just about who was in and who was out, but for Simon, a meal would have signaled or symbolized who was high and who was low. And so there were all sorts of unwritten rules that would have just been cultural practices, things that they would have done that would have signaled who was high and who was low. And so there would have been people that would have served at a meal. There would have been others that would have sat and eaten. There were practices that a host would perform when he invited a guest, especially an honored guest, right? He would greet him with a kiss. He would provide water to wash his feet. He might even have someone wash his feet for him. He would anoint his head with oil as kind of a symbol of honor for a guest. And then there was even places of honor. And so it was cool. We had our friends Wade and Kara here last week, right, who were serving in Central Asia. And, uh, and they spoke on Sunday morning, but they also led our, our family fun night last Sunday evening. And so we were there with them. And they were telling us that in the country that they live in and serve in, there's a lot of cultural kind of similarities to the culture that Jesus lived in his day. And they often uh, eat like they did in Jesus' day on the floor. They actually put out a mat and they eat around this big mat. And they often put it in a corner. 
Um, and and uh, they do that because, at least for some people, it makes eating and sitting down on the floor a little bit easier because there's at least two sides of the mat that you can lean back on the wall, right? But it means those are the seats that are kind of places of higher honor. And then the seats that are in the open section are a little bit lower honor. So they actually said that if they sit down, they've already started the meal, and then maybe someone who's like an older person comes in, they said what everyone does is they kind of just casually get up and greet that person and then wait to sit down, and they let them sit down in a place of honor along the wall. They said the corner is the most important seat, right? Because you got two walls. Um, but they let that person sit down, and then they all kind of shuffle down and sort of rearrange their seats accordingly, right? Because there's places of honor and there's places of less honor. All these things would have signaled to someone like, like Simon, a Pharisee, who was high, who was low. All, all this kind of uh, symbolism and these, these rituals sort of made these distinctions clear. That wasn't all, but a meal symbolized who was clean and who was unclean. <clears throat> Again, in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of language uh, using these terms, things that are clean, things that are unclean. Uh, again, it wasn't mostly, it wasn't primarily about hygiene that this language is used for, that these things are all about. They're actually meant um, to get at how the people of Israel were called to be holy. To be holy, because God is holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be different, to live differently, because God is set apart. He's a cut above, he's holy. He's different than we are. And so this, um, for someone like Simon, who would have been seeking to really observe all of the laws of the Old Testament, to be faithful to all of them, that would have meant that there would be certain practices that he would do or certain things that he would really try to avoid doing to keep himself away from being in an unclean state and to keep himself as often as he possibly could in kind of a clean state. But it also meant morally kind of how he lived. He was seeking to kind of live like a morally clean life, right? Like to have his hands clean, in a sense, to have a clean conscience before God. Someone like Simon, a Pharisee, would have been really passionate about having a clean conscience before God, about following all the rules, obeying all the laws to say, my hands are clean. And at mealtime, this is one of the things they did. This is one of the rituals they did that kind of symbolized that. They would sort of ceremonially together wash their hands with water. And again, it wasn't primarily about hygiene. They didn't understand or know about germs back then and how they worked. It was, it was symbol. And it was meant to kind of say together, those of us who are taking part in this meal, our hands are clean before God. Our consciences are clean before God and before each other. And so we can share a meal like that together. And so why is this particular thing so important? I just think it's, it's fascinating, especially for someone like Simon. Because the way that the Old Testament talks about things that are clean and things that are unclean, um, it talks about it in a sense that there is a direction of infection. Okay, Things always went from clean to unclean. If you were clean and you touched something or you came into contact with something that was unclean, then you being a clean person became defiled. You became unclean. If there was something that you had that was in a clean state and it came into contact with something that was unclean, like a dead body, for example, if you were to touch a dead body, then you would now become defiled. There would be certain things that you would have to do. There would be a time period that you would have to wait before you could be considered clean again. And so Simon would have worked really, really hard to keep himself in a clean state. And this was even more important for a Pharisee because the Pharisees were really part of like a holiness movement within Israel. They were kind of like the, the super spiritual people. 
That's sort of what they were. And the reason they cared so much about this was because that in Jesus' day, Israel was being occupied and ruled and governed right by the Roman Empire, by this pagan nation, by this nation that didn't believe or worship or follow the God of Israel. And in Israel's eyes, this was because it was an act of judgment against them. It was an act of judgment against them because for years they had been living, in a sense, in an unclean way. They hadn't been faithful to God. They hadn't been following him. They hadn't been worshiping him. They had been following after other gods. And so God, as an act of judgment, allows this pagan nation, this unclean nation, to rule over them. And in a sense now, in Simon's eyes, in the Pharisees' eyes, that made the whole land unclean. It was no longer, in a sense, the holy land. Right? We use that term to talk about Israel. It was no longer, in a sense, the holy land. It was now a land that had become defiled. And so for a Pharisee, they couldn't control what happened outside of their home, but they could control what happened inside their home. They could control what happened inside their bodies or to their bodies. And so they worked super hard to keep themselves and their homes in this state of cleanness in the hopes that in a sense they could kind of convince God that look at us, God, we're living faithfully again, we're following your rules, we're trying to do what pleases you. And so they would hope that that was going to try to convince God to actually bring, um, you know, like send Rome away, bring them into a new time of freedom, prosperity, peace, right? This was what this Pharisee movement was all about, to try to convince God to sort of bring the whole nation back to freedom and peace because of their own faithfulness because of their own cleanness, because of their own obeying the law. And so these are all the things that would have been underlying a meal for someone like Simon. Every time he sat down to eat, it was a reminder of who was in, who was out. It was a reminder of who was high, who was low. It was a reminder of who was clean, who was unclean. It was like this boundary marker between those who served and those who were served, between who was a Jew and who was a Gentile, between who was a sinner and who was a saint, between who was God's friend and who was God's enemy. Because if you could be invited into Simon's house for a meal, into a Pharisee's house for a meal, it meant that you could be invited into God's house. If you wouldn't be invited into a Pharisee's house, and at least according to the Pharisee, you wouldn't be invited into God's house either. That was Simon. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this woman. And she just walks right in, right? And in a sense, this probably wouldn't have been like a, a totally uh, uncommon or unexpected thing. Oftentimes in people's homes, they had kind of a room where they would sit down to eat and had a doorway or an entranceway, but it often wasn't even a covered door or like a, a door to close it. It was just open. Um, and in larger homes, which this may well have been, that even opened up into kind of like an outer courtyard where people from the street would have, you know, it wouldn't have been uncommon to have people from the street kind of come into that area. And so friends would have come in to say hello. Maybe people would have come in to do business, to buy and to sell things. Often poor would have come into that area just to kind of hang around and hope for handouts, that kind of thing. And so it wasn't the fact that she was an uninvited guest that was so shocking. It was just who the guest was. Um, you know, we're not told exactly or explicitly that she was a prostitute, but it's totally implied in what's said. It says that she was a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. So she had a reputation, which meant she was an unclean person. It meant she was a dishonorable person. It meant she was an outsider, not an insider. And now she's come into Simon the Pharisee's house, which has made his house 
unclean, right? That's the direction of infection. <clears throat> and so then she starts doing some things that would have been totally inappropriate, totally shocking for that culture. She approaches Jesus, and she, a woman in that culture, takes initiative to begin touching a man. She lets down her hair and starts crying over his feet and touching him and wiping his feet with her hair. And this would have been stuff, friends, that would never have been done in public. A woman would not have let down her hair in public. That was stuff for the bedroom, not for the kitchen. It was stuff for the bedroom, not for the open street, right? And the even more shocking thing is that Jesus receives it all. He receives it all. He doesn't say, get away. He doesn't stop her. He's not offended by it. He receives every bit of it. And so this would have been so shocking for Simon, which is why he said, if this guy were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. He'd know what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinful woman. And so now, not only is it this woman who has come in and offended and dishonored Simon, but now because of Jesus' actions, because of his response, he's offended Simon too. He's dishonored Simon. He's, in a sense, at least according to Simon's eyes, defiled his home. And then Jesus begins to speak. I love it because all of this stuff was unspoken, right? Like it actually says, Simon said to himself, Simon says. Um, he said to himself, right? Jesus knows what's going on in his heart, but I think it's so powerful because so much was actually said over this meal that wasn't really said until Jesus starts to speak. And he tells this story. He tells this story about two people who owed money, right, uh, to a money lender. One person owed a little and the other person owed a lot and neither of them could pay the debt. So the money lender decides that he's going to forgive both of their debts. And so then he asks Simon this pointed question. He says, Simon, which one of these people will love the money lender more? And Simon answers the question correctly. He says, well, I suppose it'll be the one with the bigger debt forgiven. And with that, Jesus literally, in a sense, like turns the table. He turns the table on this whole mealtime that he's sharing with Simon, with the woman, and we know there are others sitting at that table too. He begins to speak and he says, Simon, you've got all these ideas. You've got all these ideas about who's high and who's low. You know, when I came into your home, you didn't do any of the customary things that would have honored a guest. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't provide water for my feet to be washed. You didn't anoint my head with oil. But this woman, from the time that she has entered this, this place, she's been kissing my feet. She's been anointing my feet. She's been honoring me. She's been washing my feet. Simon, you've got all these ideas about who's clean and who's unclean. Um, you work so hard, Simon, to keep yourself righteous. You work so hard to sort of follow all the rules, to do all the things that you think you need to do in order to make God happy. And Simon, you're so afraid. You're so afraid of kind of being contaminated, being defiled from people that aren't like you. But Simon, you need to understand that with me, things are different. With me, that direction of infection is turned on its head. Simon, it's not this woman who makes me unclean when she touches me. It's actually my goodness. It's actually me that makes her clean. Her sins have been forgiven. She's purified. Simon, you've got all these ideas about who's in and who's out. But you need to understand, Simon, that because she's been forgiven, she's actually now invited to sit 
at the table where God sits. And at this table, Simon, there are no insiders and outsiders. It's just everyone's invited. And what I love about this is that Jesus, I mean, he speaks harshly, but he doesn't go so far as to say, Simon, she's in and now you're out. But he's actually, in a sense, kind of teasing Simon, kind of saying, Simon, do you get it? This is actually a table. At God's table, everyone is invited, the high and the low, the righteous and the unrighteous, those who are in and those who are out. And Simon, you're invited too. Everyone's invited. The question is, are you willing to sit down with the new host? Are you willing to sit down with the guests that he invites? See, I love this. I read somewhere that... um, It wasn't the fact that Jesus came and did all this eating and drinking that offended the religious people. It was his guest list. It was always the people he invited to share a meal with. But I love who he did because he sat down and he shared meals with, right? The the term in the New Testament throughout is repeated many times. He sat down with tax collectors and sinners. He shared meals with people like this woman, with people like a couple of his disciples that were tax collectors. But he also sat down with religious people too. This is a perfect example of it. He sat down with, um, with, uh, with people like Simon, with Pharisees, with teachers of the law, with righteous people, with holy people, with spiritual people, whatever. But every time he did, no matter who he was sitting with, he was always in the practice. Like I said, he was giving a picture of what the kingdom of God, of what the household of God, of what the table of God was like. And every time, it was kind of turning the table on all of their expectations, on all of our expectations of kind of who we think about who is invited, how we think we're meant to live and relate and kind of be uh, um, at God's table, like what his table rules are, you know? And for some, this would have been like an incredible picture, of like a welcome picture of forgiveness and grace. And for others, it would have been a picture that frankly was an outrage. It would have totally offended them. And this is why at the beginning of the passage that was read for us this morning, it says that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. A glutton and a drunkard. And that was probably a familiar phrase to them. It's actually taken out of Deuteronomy chapter 21, out of a section in the Old Testament where it's giving direction about what to do if you have a rebellious son. And so it says, if you have a rebellious son, what you need to do is take him to the elders of the the town and have him stoned. That's what you need to do. But it says, if you have a a rebellious son who's a glutton and a drunkard, you need to take him to the elders and have him stoned. And so when the religious people were kind of using this term to talk about Jesus, that's what they were implying. Right? He's a glutton and a drunkard. He needs to be taken care of. I think it's so incredible that that's exactly what happened. Right? Jesus was actually the faithful son who came and sat down with rebellious sons, with rebellious children. Everyone he sat down with was a rebellious child. But he came to actually die the death of a rebellious son on behalf of every one of them, on behalf of every one of us, right? So that those of us who are outside can be called in. Those of us who are unclean can be made clean. Those of us who are low can be lifted high. I love it. Jesus used the meal table to give us a picture of God's table. He made a statement about that every time. This is what I do when I sit down with someone. This is what happens when you allow me to be the host over the table of your life. I make the unclean clean. I give forgiveness. I welcome outsiders in. I cut down all of these lines that we set up in the way that we relate to each other about power and prestige, about who's high and who's low, about honor and dishonor. All those are wiped away. I make friends out of people who are my enemies. 
That's what Jesus did. And friends, I think that just a really cool and simple response and opportunity that we have, especially for those of us who have actually invited Jesus to kind of host the table of our lives, is to say that we can actually use the power of our own tables in the same way. We can actually use the tables in our homes as this powerful symbol about what God's table is like. Um, And we can do this for anyone. We can do it for people outside of the church. We can do it for people inside of the church. We can do it for people that we know well. We can do it for people that we don't know at all. I love it. We can invite, like, Invite people in our homes to get a taste, like literally a taste of what God's kingdom is like, of what his household is like. And there's just a couple ways that kind of come to mind for me as I think about this. Um, and I think they're things that we just, we don't see um, regularly or powerfully in our culture anymore. Not, not very often anyways. I think one of the things that we can offer when we allow Jesus to kind of host a meal in our own home and invite others to take part of that one of the things we can offer is this gracious and generous hospitality. Gracious and generous hospitality. This is totally, guys, becoming a forgotten art in our culture. There's all sorts of stuff that's being written about it, and we all have experiences of it in different ways. We know that we are becoming a culture where more and more we're eating fast meals on the go, in our cars, or we're shoving it down and then running off. Um, We're eating more and more of our meals alone instead of others. More and more of our meals in front of, like, in front of a screen instead of another live person. We live busy lives. We're doing a lot, but we don't just take time to be. Um, and even that word friend, right? More and more, it's actually becoming associated with something that is online, that's scattered and that's shallow, rather than something that is deep and personal. In a meal, when we allow Jesus to host it, we have this incredible opportunity to offer like gracious, generous welcome, and hospitality. Um, I think one of the other things we have to be able to offer is this idea that things don't need to be perfect, but they can be gracious and real. You know, like, like in Simon's eyes, that's what everything had to be. It had to be perfect. Everything had to be lined up. Everything had to be clean or whatever. And that mentality actually kept him from love. That's what Jesus said. Simon, you've been forgiven little, and so you love little. At God's table, we don't need to be perfect, at least the kind of perfect that Simon thought he needed to be. We have an opportunity to be gracious and real. And so a couple stories come to mind in light of that. I was recently at a training event for Alpha, and there was a bunch of pastors gathered there and other lay leaders and that kind of thing. And one of the pastors who was speaking was this guy who's pastoring a large church in Orange County, California. And he said, you need to understand the power of Alpha, especially in a culture like mine or a setting like mine, where in Orange County, this is like the facelift capital of the world, like literally, like he was saying, like every other person has had a facelift or a lift of another body part or whatever. Like there's all sorts of, and there's this idea that you have to give the impression of perfection to everyone that you meet. And because of that, nobody invites other people into their home because there's so much fear and insecurity of what people actually might see when they see a little bit below the surface of their lives. And so if anyone even does connect for a meal, it always happens outside at a restaurant. And so he was talking about Alpha and how one of the the values of Alpha is radical hospitality and how powerfully that speaks and how countercultural that is in the time and places that we live that can actually speak about the incredible generosity of God. Um, I love it because it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It just has to be real 
and gracious. That's what he's talking about. Someone else from our own church I was talking to recently, and they were saying something really similar. They're like, you know, one of the things that's actually kept them from inviting other people into their home was because they've just had this, felt this really big internal pressure to kind of have everything neat and tidy and in its place and perfect and spotless and floors scrubbed and counters cleaned and everything before they would be ready to invite someone else in their home. And so it's been a real struggle for them, and it's actually kept them from inviting other people in. <clears throat> but they've been meeting more regularly with someone else in our church. It's kind of been building into them and praying with them, that kind of thing. And so recently they were at their place, and it's not like their place was a pigsty, but it was clear that not everything was kind of in order. You know, there was some stuff scattered on the floor, the table had some stuff on it, whatever. Like, it wasn't all in a mess. And they had a great time together. They spent some time praying together, whatever. But I think one of the things, like, this was actually something without a single word being said, just because everything wasn't in its perfect place, and that didn't take away at all from the value of the connection, that was actually one of the most powerful lessons that was learned in that experience. I love it. It's like we don't need to be experts in this. It's not like you need to invite someone over and have like a nine-point sermon to be able to preach to them, to teach them something about who God is and how he works and how he actually shapes their lives. This is just real stuff. These are meals. These are opportunities that we have to just invite people in to a gracious and real experience, to conversations and to times together where honesty happens, where forgiveness happens, where prayer happens, where grace happens. Because that's what happens when Jesus is hosting our gatherings, when Jesus is hosting our meals. And so here's what I want you to do for a simple next step. If you could with me, just close your eyes for a second. <clears throat> I want you to picture the place in your home where you eat. Just get that in your head right now. Maybe it's at a table. Maybe you don't have a table. Maybe it's on the floor or on a couch or whatever. That's okay. Whatever it is, just picture it. Imagine yourself sitting down at that table. And I, I just want you to take a moment right now, even just a moment of silence, and say, God, who do I need to set the table for? Who do I need to set the table for? Is there someone who's maybe on the outside in some way? Maybe they've been trying to break in or whatever, that they need to be invited in. Is there a relationship that's going on in your life that you know there's tension or unforgiveness or you're butting heads? And maybe there's a conversation that needs to be happened where forgiveness and reconciliation happens. Is there someone who's going through a period in their lives where they're just low? Like maybe they've just been beaten down. Maybe they've lost a job. Maybe they've had some crisis in life, whatever. Maybe that's someone who needs to be lifted up. I'm not trying to get at anything that is, um, I don't know, like intense or unrealistic. Like I think that's what's so beautiful about this um, is that we can simply invite someone in to share an experience of a very normal and natural thing and trust and ask God to do a supernatural thing in it. That's what he does when we invite people into a meal and ask Jesus to be a host. You can open your eyes by now. <clears throat> it, what could it look like if this were a regular question that we asked ourselves and asked God, God, who do you want me to set the table for? God, maybe this week or this month, who do you want me to set the table for? Who is someone who's on the outside that needs to be invited in? Who's someone that's low and needs to be lifted high? Who's someone that needs forgiveness, right? Maybe there's an uncleanness or whatever. There's Tension, dissonance in a relationship, forgiveness needs to happen. 
What would it look like if I were to set the table and invite Jesus to host? What kind of kingdom of God stories might we have if we do that? I love it. And so for some of you, I totally get that this might be a totally new thing. Maybe you have not had someone into your home to share a meal forever. Maybe they've never done that. Maybe it's been years, and I think that's okay. I think one, one possibility could be this might be an actual way for you to take a step of faith. It's a way of actually taking a risk and putting yourself out there, right, to actually prepare a meal for someone. I remember hearing the story years ago of a woman who said, I'm a terrible cook. I can only cook one thing, and that's lasagna. But I don't want to keep that, or I don't want to let that uh, keep me from having people over to my home. So that's what I'm going to cook, no matter who I invite over to my home. We're going to have lasagna. So if they've come over once, they've had lasagna, and it was great. If they come over 10 times, they're having lasagna every time. That's awesome. Because it's not so much about the food, right? It's about what happens over the meal. And she valued that more. She valued the possibilities of what God can do when we, can invite, when we invite someone into our home and allow Jesus to be the host, rather than the food that we serve. So my hope is that for all of us, in some way, we're just getting a taste of how the power of God is unleashed. Like Jesus came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking through the simple thing like a meal. And is there ways that we, even over the summer, over the next week, over the next month, while the summer's warm, where you can be outside in the backyard, makes cooking a little bit easier on the barbecue, whatever, you can share a meal with someone. Because when we invite someone else to sit at the table with us and ask Jesus to be the host. That's what we're doing, friends. Outsiders are welcomed in. Sinners are forgiven. People who are low are lifted high. And it all points to the one who's done this for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, it just kind of struck me as we were worshiping there. Um, as we were singing, I just thought, you know, this woman came to this meal and she was probably the only one that didn't even have a bite. No, but she left full, right? She left full because Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. And so my blessing for you today is that um, you would encounter Jesus in this same way, that you would be filled with his grace, with his forgiveness, with his love, with his acceptance, that you would invite him in a new way to host your own table that you would receive these kinds of words from him and you would have something more than just food to offer the guests that you invite to your home. But I want to encourage you, continue to ask that question. Lord, who do you want me to set the table for? Would you receive that this morning? Amen. Amen.